I was going to talk to you about a few things about, you know, in the bedroom and that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to ask Bill what he's doing. It's certainly not Connor. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. Where are you? <laughs> what are you up to? I'm walking the dog, obviously. Oh, you're out walking the dog. All right. Well, we was going to have you jump on, but you're going to have to clean up dog do and stuff. No, I'm walking. If you want me to jump on, I'm perfectly happy to disclose loads of stuff on Connor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me finish this up and I'll give you a shout in a bit. I'll give my best to oh. both of them and, and tell Wild Bill that I presume they both will they be in Philly. I will be there. Bill will be there. Connor's just give it a thumbs up as well. Yeah, Bill said he's looking forward to trying some of your food. Hang on a minute. What do you say? Connor's just stuck his thumb up Bill's bum. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's just that kind of show around here. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up on the weekly headlines and results from the professional tour. And I'm Connor O'Malley, joined by Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. Good to see you guys. Good afternoon and good morning, boys. It's, it's been a while. I actually can't remember the last time we sat down and, and had a catch-up, so I'm looking forward to this one. It's been too long. It's been too long. We missed you. Uh, yeah. uh, it didn't seem like Bill was missing me because every time I see him, he's on a boat with a beer in his hands. He didn't seem too worried yeah, exactly. about, about the breakdown or Roundup or any other kind of podcast for that matter. So. I missed you. I know. He, he was immersed. I, just, just know I every episode we've talked about how much we've missed you, PJ, and uh, your name was never taken in vain, and all we said was the podcast is lesser because you're not on it. That was really the message. That wow. was the theme. That wasn't the feedback I got sent through to me. Uh, <laughs> I won't mention any names, but my sources who are extremely reliable and would never tell fibs. I mean, yeah. I'm actually, uh, it's, it, it, this took a lot for me to actually come on today and actually and have to sit in, in the same room, kind of, kind of room as you, Bill. So well, let's, let's just, we'll approach with caution. No, we'll, we'll be, yeah. fair enough. As I said, <laughs> I think in an early podcast, I categorically deny anything that somebody said that I said. I deny it. So I know how busy I know how busy and hardworking you are, PJ. And the fact that you could make any time for this is just a testament to your will and to your work ethic and my passion for the show. Yes, yes, passion. Yes, passion for the show. Exactly. That's I I miss that. All good though. Nice to have everyone here. PJ just back from Qatar. What, What was the scene like there? Not just the squash, but as far as like the Doha and. Any remnants of the World Cup still there? Was it steamy hot? What was the, what was it like there? I've never uh, been, obviously, the Qatar. Yeah, steamy hot for sure. And I'd, I'd actually forgotten how hot it was at this time of year. Normally, when they have the event over there, it's in the Qatar Classic. It's generally November time. So we've gone uh, a couple of months ahead of, ahead of schedule. And it was uh, about a six and a half hour flight over. Qatar Airways were one of the sponsors, so they flew us over. Terrific flight, Airbus 380, huge, lovely reclining seats, amazing trip. And then as we came out of the airport terminal, it was uh, 41 degrees, so there's 110. Uh, This is 2 a.m., by the way. It was 41 degrees, so it's 110 degrees upon arrival with an 86%, no, sorry, 76% humidity. So literally as you came out of the... It, it was almost as though you had just stepped into the, the hottest sauna that you could with, withstand. And within seconds, and I'm, I mean literally seconds, 
you just started to perspire. Yeah. Drenched. But again, in typical Qatar fashion, the way that the so the Fed, the federations has now merged. So the squash association have merged with the uh, the tennis association, and literally lined up outside the front of the airport were five brand spanking new top of the range Kia, which I didn't even know that they did a high end saloon Kia cars, chauffeur driven cars with signs waiting to take us off to our respected hotels. Well, the the. The Ritz Hotel, well, there were, there, right? There, there Talk were two to us hotels, actually. There was the Ritz Carlton, and, uh, and then <laughs> okay. there was the Dusset, Ho- Dusset Hotel, which is a hotel that we've stayed at previously. All of the players and some of the Squash TV crew got sent over to the Ritz Carlton, obviously five star off the charts. But we went to another five star hotel called the Dusset Hotel. When actually, in, in in some ways, it's actually quite nice because of a breakfast of the morning. You don't really want to be. You know, the players want their own space and we, you know, we need our own time alone as well. So sometimes those breakfasts and just hanging around the hotel can be uh, a little bit more strenuous than they need to be running into players. And, you know, at times it's great, but there are times when you just want to be left alone and just getting on with your own kind of thing. So it was the nice to have that little bit of a separation. But um, were, the ref- were the referees with you or were they with the players? The referees were over at the Ritz-Carlton. They got the red carpet rolled out. They got, you know, fantastic dream as we always have typically you know i remember back in the day it was always one of the players favorite events on tour because you know when we used to turn up as it, it was one of the few events where they actually treated you like professional athletic superstars the right. car the cars that they yeah. used to show for us around in just the attention to detail it would be complimentary breakfast lunch and dinner no stone was left on t- um the just the just the way that they do things, uh, you know. And this is back when it was just the, the squash association was separate. Now that they've merged with the the tennis association, it gives you an insight as just the professionalism and just how meticulous they are um, in their sports over there. And we we've managed to you know hang on to the shirt tails of that and, and get a bit of a taste as to what it was like. So from that particular standpoint, it was uh, absolutely just. Five star plus, amazing. So, is it Qatar where I saw? Did they have the man-made beach? Is uh, that Qatar? Like maybe, not the. Re- it, it may be, but we didn't go. You didn't go outside no, at all. No, we didn't go there. So a couple of the TV crew did actually take a trip down to the public beach that was down there. It was twenty dollars to hire a sun lounger, but they said it was you know in the middle of the day. It was like forty-five degrees, hundred and twenty uh, degrees. And they said that actually going into the, the sea was almost just like getting into a bath, like a, a warm yeah. bath. So yeah, there was I saw, no I saw something on, the heat. Yeah, it was brutal. I saw, I saw something online, It was a, and I thought it was Qatar or Doha, where they had lit up the beaches at night, put like full-fledged lights because it's too hot to go to the beach during the day. Yeah. So everybody goes to the beach at night. So I was wondering if that was the place. Yeah, I mean, that's, it could well be, Bill. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. But, you know, just the, the way that they do things over there uh, is, is quite special. One thing that I didn't enjoy about it over there is most of the restaurants that you go into, it's still smoking. They're smoking. They're still smoking aloud. No. It was brutal. Yeah. Horrendous. Wow. Which, which shocked me, really. With as advanced as they are in other aspects, for them to still allow smoking everywhere, it, it was pretty bad brutal. to a point of we yeah. actually had to then seek out non-smoking restaurants 
which was hard, <laughs> which was actually wow. quite hard. So since you didn't get to go outside at all because of the heat, so you didn't get to see any of the remnants of what soccer stadiums, I was curious whether the soccer stadiums are being used for anything or whether like most like Olympics where they get overgrown with weeds and they kind of just sit there at these kind of countries. There, there was no kind of hangover from the World Cup as far as we could see. Um, a couple of the roads still had some signage that mm-hmm. was um, kind of uh, signaling where the direction of certain stadiums were. What was at those particular locations i'm not quite sure i heard that i think only five of the stadiums were going to remain as actual soccer stadiums the others were going to be used for different kind of setups but what what they were i'm not quite sure when i know during these events the schedule is very consuming there's a lot going on and when you do get a moment to relax sometimes you just want to rest up but you're traveling. Was there any memorable, memorable experience or anything you did outside of the commentary and the squash and the regular routine? It's so hard, kind of. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. It was a case of we landed at 2 a.m. on the Thursday night, sorry, Friday morning. We were on commentary at 12. We then commentated basically from noon till 9, 9.30 for the first five days of the event. The only time we had a chance to do anything was on the – quarterfinals, semifinals and finals day. So we had three days where, to be honest, you're so exhausted because of the week's work. Yeah. And it's so hot to go out and really do anything of, you know, any sort of sightseeing or kind of touristy stuff that we just use that time to get out by the pool for a couple of hours. Even believe that it, even the sunbathing was hard work because you would literally, you'd be dipping. I was in and <laughs> yeah. out of the swimming pool like a duck's head. Yeah. Out, you would literally dry off for 30 seconds to a minute and then within five minutes, but you're just so heavily perspiring, you had to go back into the pool again. And it wasn't enjoyable, believe me, as kind of as yeah. bad as that sounds for any of the listeners. It was, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't fun at all. So we just had a couple of days where we had a few hours set by the pool, but that was about it. And when was the last time you you and Joey were behind the mic together? Uh, it would have been the Manchester Open, which was, I think, April. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. which was... At, Reunited. Yeah, you know, we, pick, we always pick up where but, we left. I'll, I'll probably speak to Joey once a week, twice a week on, on occasion, all depending yeah. on what's going on in, in his world and, and mine respectively. We, we always keep in touch and, you know, we're always up to date with everything going on, on on the tour. I think that's one of the reasons why we have such a good chemistry in the commentary box is because we are so close of, you know, outside of the, the squash world. And it's always great fun with uh, with Joey. He's a real, you know, he's a real character. He's a personality. And that's why I've always said that for me, this is one of the best jobs in the world for me because I'm sitting there talking about a game that I love with one of my best best buddies so it doesn't really yeah. get much better than that so that was nice but and given that it's been a little it's been a minute since yeah. you've been behind the mic how are you feeling any rust any get a little bit nervous t- or t- no t- TV natural days tv days always kind of get the juices going because it's live you're on air there's no retakes there's no chances to slip up so that's when the adrenaline really kicks in but from the early rounds no you may take half a match or once you get back into the formula of you know how the show opens and what the rundown is going to be and what particular topics are going to get discussed once all of that has been cleared you know but believe it or not behind the scenes it's a, it's a pretty professional outfit so we have you know we have rehearsals and that kind of yeah. thing now. and we were talking about this last week how far we've come in the last 
five, five or six years, how much more of a professional, you know, our workload has dramatically increased and we're having to do a lot more work behind the scenes, a lot more preparation, a lot more studying of form and those kind of areas. And we're starting to see the impact of that now with the quality of the product that's being put out. So, um, it was, Bill and I were talking about that in the last podcast of just it's, it was actually pretty noticeable from the you know, seen on Squash TV that that how elevated the production is. But what are some things that jumped out to you in terms of whether it's the new investment or just you know more of a cohesive group working together? Like what to you have you noticed? Oh wow, that's really great. Without a shadow of a doubt, the equipment uh, upgrades, the, the quality of the the 4K now that the program is being uh, shown in. Um, the extra cameras that we have available to us, the data that we're now collecting, so we've got more information to, to talk about. Uh, the, the team that we have with through PSA and Squash TV have been doing long enough now to build up a, a good relationship. And we're all kind of collectively working on the same page and we're now starting to learn each other's traits and habits. So it's not such a long-winded, timely process if we need to get certain clips put into the show. You know, the, the transition of that is a lot quicker. Uh, we, we're now using more consistent directors who are who have worked with Squash. So they're learning, or not they're learning, they've learned the game over the last sort of five or six years. So they can start to predict and read and now know what looks better from a program standpoint, what looks better as, as the show starts to develop. So it's a bit of a, an, an accumulation of a few things, Connor, I'd say. You know, and when you add all of those small little details up, that it starts to make a, a big difference. Well, and also more people, the commentary pool and the, the analysis, that's really building, yeah. right? You remember back in the day, it would just be like three of no, you. Connor, when it first started in 2010, Tournament of Champions, it was just Joey and I. And it was yeah, eight match days exactly. of Joey and I just rotating. But now we have, yeah. it's probably six or seven commentators that are starting to rotate. So again, from a chemistry standpoint, that's starting to become a little bit easier because you know who you're working with. Yeah. And the product is... We're getting there. We're getting there. We're quite excited about you know how far it's come, and and then the potential of what the future holds as well. So it's it's nice to see these things starting to come to fruition. So let's yeah. get into the event itself. I mean, <laughs> it was it was quite a tournament. I think the biggest story coming out of there has to be Ali Farag, right? I mean, Ali Farag, the stretch of events he's had since coming back from his injury. So it was just about, he got injured at the U.S. Open, which was last October. Then he tried to play the gla- in the final. Then he tried to play the grasshopper. I think he got a bye into the second round, played a point against Nicky Mueller or something like that, and then, yeah. then dropped out. And then he took time off, got healthy. And his match record, since he came back, since, since the grasshopper, yeah. looking at his match record yesterday, he is 39-4. and four. Since the grasshopper, four matches just only, has only lost four matches. He's won the last five World Series events that he's played in, which is it's incredible. That's an incredible stretch of play. Yeah, I think he's won six of seven events, if I remember correctly. This was yeah. after taking six months out, by the way. We're not talking about a couple of weeks away, we're talking about six mm. months. And I remember seeing when I spoke to Mike Way at the 
US Junior Open in December. Mike, who obviously works very closely alongside Ali, I was asking how Ali was getting on because we hadn't, there were no signs or sound or nobody knew what was going on with him. And, and Mike was saying that Ali was having to recalibrate his movements, having to learn how to move in a particular way because of the injury. It wouldn't enable him to move the way that he had done previously. To what detail and to what extent, I don't know, but it just sounded fascinating. After hearing that, in my mind initially, I'm thinking, that really doesn't sound good. He has no chance. really doesn't sound good. Are we going to ever see Ali back again? Because at this stage, don't forget as well, he he was number one in the world and he was was just starting to dominate a little bit in that little period where he was starting to really – sorry, Cornelia – I mean, remember also, I mean, the back of my mind is also, well, Rami Ashore, yeah. who was at the top of his game, knee injury, and then done. So was this going to yeah. be a plague for Ali? Well, that, that was all of our, our what biggest a- fears, really, for all the Ali fans. I mean, you know, Joe and I, as you can probably tell, we're massive Ali Farag fans. And it was it was quite worrying and quite sad at the time when this injury came in. And almost out of nowhere, because we didn't see it happen. And it was just such a, it looked like such a, and not like a nondescript issue. And then all yeah. of a sudden, he's had to take six months out of the game. That, as I said, just listening to Mike and talking about Ali, it didn't sound encouraging. And then he came back. I can't remember what his first event back was. Berg, he, I think, I think was. he played two events. Yeah, he played two events. And he then goes on. He wins the British Open whilst adhering to Ramadan. From that, he's then backed up and won the World Championships. Two days later, or a day later, he's flown over to Manchester and he's then won the Manchester Open. Then goes on to win Elguna, then Paris, and now he's just won Qatar. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. insane. What he's done is absolutely insane. What, what, I mean, what would you say is his superpower, his weapon? Like, how does he dismantle all these players? He is, yeah. Which arguably is one of the, the highest, I mean, the caliber of squash these days is just hitting you know, new heights. So what do you think Ali does to differentiate himself? Obviously, he's one of his biggest strokes. I mean, it was interesting coming into the final, Joey and Lisa Aiken were, we got some stats up and it's he and Elias are, they're similar height. But Elias is carrying 12 kgs extra. That's 24, 26 pounds more weight. Okay. Farag is only 70 kilograms. So when you're carrying, so, you know, that amount of weight around the court, given his power to weight distribution, so although he's that slim, he still has a lot of power within those muscles. The definition in his legs is, is you know, pretty apparent when you see it. it. He, The way he moves around the court and the way that he reads his opponents gives him this ability to already amp- anticipate the opponent's shot. So he's already creeping up the court in expectation of the opponent's uh, return and then reapplying the pressure. So he can take the ball for me just so much earlier, so much more consistently with those little advantages that I've just mentioned there. And over time, he just grinds his opponents down. Do you think he's mentally mentally stronger than anybody else on the tour right now also? Whether he's mentally stronger... It's hard to gauge that particular facet, but when you see what he's done and what he's put his body through, 
I mean, the guy is literally superhuman. I, I, you know, we were talking about it off air, and it's just it's quite hard to fathom exactly what he's done over the last eighteen months. So compare it for us, because you have a little bit more historical knowledge than I do anyways. Take, take someone else, a different era, like what he's done, maybe in the last 25, 30 years. Who's done something comparable? I, I, Anyone? I think you've got to put him up in the realms of Jahangir and Jan Shikhan. If you look at the four and a half years, not dropping a game, five and a half years, not dropping a match for Jan, Jahangir Khan, that kind of domination. And then Jan Shikhan, who I think he had something like 72 months at world number one. I can't remember his exact stats, but it's that kind of a domination when, where they've just completely separated themselves from the field. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, you know, you're going to have your Mustafa Asal fans who might say that, well, Mustafa hasn't been around. This run wouldn't have been the same if he hadn't. That's nothing to do with Farag. Farag can only beat who's out there. But I don't know any other player in the world right now that could go through and do what, Ali Farag has done over the last six to eight months. So it's an accumulation yeah. of things. It's the, it is the mental strength, but it's the natural ability and the talent that he has. Um, and nobody is do- has dominated like that for the best part of 25, 30 years and to, since the Khan dynasty, because Rami didn't yeah. manage to do it. Um, I don't think anybody else has really. Yeah, we'll jump back to a couple uh, men's matches, but before uh, we we leave Qatar, let's talk about Al Hamami winning the women on the women's side. Yep. You know, disappointed in Paris, lost to Sobi in Paris. Her bugaboo is it seems like Sabrina Sobi that she, she has lost to twice now in the last calendar year. Yep. But then she came back and beat Noral Sherbini in, in in the final. If yeah, I mean, if you put the score like, listen, Sherbini won Paris. Sherbini's probably yep. ahead of schedule for her. Yeah. Preparations coming into this particular season. She normally, not to take anything away from Hamami, but let's see what happens at the major events. Let's see what happens at your British Opens, your World Championships, your US Opens, mm-hmm. and those kind of events. However, the way that Hamami played against Shabini in that final, I've never seen anybody make Shabini feel or look so awkward. She just played at a tempo where Shabini ended up just pretty much rallying the entire match down the backhand side of the court. And she almost looked out of ideas of ways to win rallies against her mammy. And I haven't seen that in her ever. I mean, it was mesmerizing watching the backhands. I mean, watching on Squash TV, it was just consistent backhand on the wall, backhand on the wall. And I mean, the the fifth game, she made Sherbini look human, which very few people can do. I mean, she came out. I mean, I thought it was two games to one. I thought it was over. I thought she was going to lose three games to one. And she just completely flipped a switch. And she's so emotional out there. It's hard. She was able, somehow she's able to harness her on court, like while she's playing emotions and then releases after each point. Yep. And then settles back down again and like kind of gives herself a little talking to it almost seems. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. almost like a regroup. It is, it's almost like the McEnroe outburst and then all of a sudden yeah. com- comes back yeah. in and, and can reset and start again. I, listen, I'm, the, I'm a massive Shabini fan. Just the, not yeah. only the way that she plays, the way that she conducts herself. You don't have these screams and outbursts and, you know, these cries of come on and all of those kind of things. She's just so cool the way that right. she, that, the way that she plays. But her mammy, has this kind of real dogged uh, determination and desire to win that obviously upsets and gets into the faces of the likes of Gohar and Shabini and 
because of that, I, I feel that plays into her hands a little bit. She, you know, she just, not, not she doesn't confront them, but she just likes to make life extremely uncomfortable for them out on the court. And I think you got a bit of a sense of that with Shabini in that final. But I don't know what her mammy's done over the recent months because there was, you know, she seemed like she'd got off the boil a little bit, and she she seemed as though she'd mm. lost her way. But she seems to have a movement back. She was confident. Best mover in the ladies' game, bar none, right now. And I, you'd have to possibly say ever. Uh, you can compare it to, people might talk about the movement of um, Nicole David, perhaps. She was very light-footed and very nimble. But if you talk about from an agility and a powerful kind of movement and retrieving ability, the Hamami, for me, is arguably the best in the business and that combined with her she just seemed to be in a, in a good place mentally and you get that combination right and it's good to see her back winning these events again because three or four years ago I felt that she was it was just nailed on that she was going to become number one in the world it was just a matter of time but then right. that didn't seem to happen but now we're starting to see hopefully some green shoots of, of some good things to come from her Anytime a, either Hamami or one of the top Egyptian women lose, I, there's always a rumor started that they're pregnant. Those, those rumors are always started by me, mind you, and I send it out to, to my fellow squash fans when a big upset happens in the early rounds. And just know I've been right twice. All right. Well, third so, time, no, I think you may have no, this one wrong. But Yeah, broken clocks <laughs> right twice a day, too, hey, though. So, Nor, uh, I predicted Nora and Raneem's uh, pregnancies. Just know that. But so one last thing on, on Sherbini, and I think, yeah. PJ, I messaged you this. Could somebody please teach Norel Sherbina to tie her hair up. Her hair is in her mouth. She's like eating her hair halfway through the match all the time. It's in her eyes. It's on her shoulders. It is all over the place. Nor, I mean, she's a, the could be the best squash player in the history of the world, in the history of the PSA Tour, and she cannot tie her hair up. Some, something needs to be done about it. I, I mean, I can only say that during that kind of crazy phase when I had extremely long hair, and mm-hmm. there would be certain matches that I'd be playing where I'd have to kind of move the ponytail out of the way of my eyes. You're not aware of it while you're doing it, and it's not that much of a distraction. However, people that used to watch me play would always say, get your frigging hair out of your eyes. How can you play while you're moving your hair away from your face? So Did you ever eat your hair while you were yeah, playing? Yeah. I played Mark Cairns once in the British Open quarterfinals, and as I played the shot and kind of swung cross court, he's anticipated the straight ball and the, my ponytail was swung and smacked him in the eye. But yeah, there was plenty of, <laughs> there was plenty of occasions where I'd get a mouthful of long blonde locks. Yeah, she, she should put some of that Asics gel or something like that that the marathon runners use. Just put it at the end of her hair. At least she should get yeah. some bounce from it, you know, while she's playing. But yeah, so it, it was just a, a great event. By the other matches that took place, two people in mind: Greg Lobin, yeah, unbelievable, re- reached a quarterfinal, broke into the top twenty for the first time in his career. Oh, Hunt. he did it. Yeah, well, that was all yeah. the talk because I didn't, I couldn't believe it after the match after it uh, took Cruan down. And uh, Michael Absalom, second best MC out there after you, Bill, obviously. Yeah, PJ, thank you. Said that uh, Puffy Michael Absalom, by the way, I don't know if anybody there mentioned it to him. It could be the new 4K cameras, but did Michael Absalom put on like maybe a few pounds in the last uh, few months? Possibly, possibly. Puffy Michael. Yeah, he wouldn't get on the scales (laughs) while we were around, so I don't know, possibly. (laughs) But he actually said to Greg that, uh, do you think that may 
what do you think? What, what are you hoping from from that win? And he said, well, hopefully it gets me inside the top 20. And I couldn't believe it. 32 years of age. He's been around for Amazing. such an age and played to a good level. And I've watched him plenty on squash TV that I couldn't believe he hadn't actually been inside the top 20 before and thoroughly deserved. You know, he, he's got a certain brand of squash that is very different. It's very open style of play. However, he seemed to control that a little bit going into that week took down Cron and then had a great run through. You know, it's great yeah. to have him inside the top 20 and kudos to him. So historic, another historical fact, if you could enlighten us on this, if you know, PJ, so I was thinking about husband and wife teams who have reached the top 20 on the PSA tour. So obviously Donna Lobin made, I think, I think she was number 13 at one point. So that's uh, one couple. We yeah. have obviously Renim and Tarek yep. and then then Ali and Nor Al-Tayeb. Any yep. other husband and wife teams, top 20 combos when they were married? R- Rodney Martin was married to a lady called Danielle Drady back in the day. Uh-huh. She was top 10 also, whether they were both inside the top 10 during that particular phase i'm not entirely sure but what about Ricketts? Anthony ricketts and was- alani joyce yeah i don't yeah, yeah i think yeah possibly yeah. mohammed el shabag is obviously dating joel king then obviously they're not married joel. But, uh, there's a few power couples out there but yeah, yeah for sure uh, not many the and- world championships sorry the u.s open championships though so what farag along with At- tired in 2017 was insane, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. So the other match that everyone came away talking about was the opera. It wasn't really a, a match. It was like an opera. was the Mazen Hashem, Mohammed Al-Shrabagi Oh, match. my gosh. Uh, you commentated on that match. It was so much fun to watch, as yeah. a spectator. I've gone back and watched it a couple times since then, <laughs> just because the, some of the rallies in the, in the fourth game were just off the charts, just absolutely off the charts. Like, they just went grueling, and Mohammed was grunting and grinding. It was just... The drama was like edge of your seat stuff, like the hair on the back of your neck was rising watching those guys play. And Mazen would Mazen became Mazen a bunch of times and would make a thousand ridiculous retrievals and then hit the stupidest shot inconceivable. Yeah. But then at 10-8, down two match balls, he hits two drop shots that were just otherworldly, like otherworldly, like that he didn't have a care in the world that he was going for those shots and they were just absolutely perfect to, to make that 10-10. But that being said... That all gets turned aside because of match ball. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what happened, Mazen had match ball and he served. I think this was his fourth match ball, by the way, because I think he, he was up and he got to 13-12, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And he served and Mohamed El-Shrabagi kind of waved at the ball. Almost, depending on which angle you looked at, it looked like he was either not ready for the serve or he was trying to nonchalantly maybe faint and hit the serve into the nick, and hopefully Mazen would think he wasn't ready and wouldn't react. But either way, Connor, maybe you could describe this better than me. Yeah. So he was bent mm-hmm. over, right? The previous point and the entire match has been grueling, exhausting. The players are sort of at you know the last <laughs> of their tank, and Muhammad's bent over which would normally, you would think that he would wave off the the serve, but he does nothing of that. Hisham serves, and then he hits a shot that is going directly towards the front wall, but he was trying to say, well, it was obviously not intended for that because look how bad the shot was. And it really, I mean, just looked like he had a, a mental lapse. But given he did not wave off the ball discerningly enough for a referee or anyone to be like, that was, he, he attempted yeah, to play the that's ball. What, that's what I saw. PJ, what did you see when it happened where you guys were kind of stunned and it was, it was a stunning, it was a stunning event and kind of left your mouth open, especially all the drama that was happening before that. 
Yeah, again, just touching on your earlier point, it was probably one of the most entertaining matches of the entire tournament because throughout the match, and this point will make sense a little bit later, throughout the match, Mazanisham clearly doesn't enjoy... I mean, if you look at the the, uh, the win-loss record, I think he was something like 11 love down in the head-to-heads. So he obviously mm. hates playing Mohammed. Wow. And... Let's not forget as well the night before. I can't remember who El Shabagi played the night before. I played Yusuf Ibrahim the night before. Had an another epic match. Humdinger oh my gosh. Of a match against against Yusuf Ibrahim. Another brilliant game of squash. So there was always there was already this kind of expectation of El Shabagi not being able to back up in that next round against Hisham. Hisham, in contrast, had sliced his way through his his previous round and was pretty much fresh as you could expect to be going into that quarterfinal. El Shabagi then does a job on Mazen, plays at such a pace, gets into his head and make, creates this real unease about Mazen Hisham. Hisham then during the match just starts to turn it around a little bit, puts some good hard work into El Shabagi. Shabagi then starts to feign the dodgy right leg. I don't know if ever you remember, anybody that's listening ever remembers oh, yeah. the match where El Shabagi played Gregory Gautier. And Gregory Gautier is walking around on one leg, hobbling like he literally can't carry on anymore. Anyway, he ends up beating El Shabagi because El Shabagi has a complete mental relapse. El Shabagi starts to do the same kind of trick to Mazen within that match. And then next rally starts and El Shabagi's diving all around the court, only then to finish by hobbling around on his leg again. So I've had all of this going on. And then, as you said, Connor, perfectly described at 12 all, they have this absolute gut ripper of a rally, which... Mazen ends up winning somehow, serving at 13-12. Jason Foster, the central referee, calls the score. Mazen is then ready to serve. As you said, El Shabagi's bent over double. He's got his left hand on his uh, left leg. Ball comes up. Then as soon as he serves, El Shabagi makes a step forward and tries to play the ball. If you ask me personally, I don't think El Shabagi was entirely ready. But the mere fact that he prepared his backswing and then made a swing towards the front wall, as soon as you do that, you're declaring yourself ready to start the rally and the ball is then live and in play. As soon as it happened and then El Shabagi didn't move, there was just a a moment of silence between Joey and I, completely stunned because we couldn't believe what actually happened because we knew the rules. The ref had called the score. Mazin had served. Shabagi had swung. So as soon as you do those three things, the yeah. rally's in play. The ball doesn't even reach the front wall. There's no attempt from El Shabagi to move and go forward to play the next shot. Well, it rolls to yeah. the front wall. And the only reason I say that is because there's common practice that if you weren't ready, you would slap it directly towards the sidewall, catch the ball yourself, or, leave it. or directly or you back at your yeah. opponent. Yeah, or you leave it. But in a way where it's completely sidewall first, and, and you're trying to return the ball back to the server yeah. to say, I'm not ready. Because yeah. um, I think what this... Basically, if you're not going to hit it, if you're not intending on playing the ball. Yeah, put your, ha- yeah. Put your hand up. I'm not, you know, you're waving. So any sort of, you know, I think mentally, he just had a, a mental lapse. And what was interesting was- about this, and we showed it the following day, is Gregory Gautier had exactly, who now works with Mohammed as his coach and his mentor, Mohammed El Shabagi did a very similar thing to Greg 
in I think it was in Elguna or it was in one of the ty- one of the championships where slightly different where Greg actually served. El Shabagi said, "Not re- I'm not ready," but played the ball cross court. The ball went up. El Shabagi then took the point, which is a similar kind of scenario. A few people were you know were bringing up that particular situation where the irony where El Shabagi had done this in in Elguna ended up going on and winning the championships after that after doing the, that job on Greg, and now it's come back kind of full circle and he's been on the receiving end of it. I think that was the little bit of the, the disappointing part was El Shabagi's reaction to it because he, he kind of always puts himself forward as the guardian of the game, right? That he's everything that's right with squash and with the scheduling and blah, 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 everything. Everything yeah. is, and he's the one who's looking out for the best of the players and the best yeah. of the sport. Yeah. His reaction to that was for something like that was pretty poor, I thought. I mean, his like throwing his arms out like that and screaming and yelling. I think that was the knee-jerk reaction from Mohammed, and, and I get it because I don't, necessarily think it was a fully committed attempt to play the ball. We will never know if that ball would have gone up, would he have tried to take the point? You know, that that question will never get answered. Only Mohammed would ever know the answer to that. You don't achieve in the game of squash what Mohammed's achieved and back up the way that he's backed up that particular week and previous weeks and, you know, historically through the years, unless you have this unbelievable ability to push and uh, and have a, such a drive and a desire to win. So given that, and then the decision being given by the central referee, which was 100% right, by the way, Jason Foster, and I know he, he feels awful about the fact that he had to give that decision. That is why Mohammed would have reacted the way that he did. If you've got that pretty calm, cool demeanour in a, such a, a heated situation like that, I don't know of anybody that would literally be able to just say, hold your hands up, my bad, I made a mistake, walk over and shake hands. You're not going to get that at the very a very top level of, uh, of competitive sport. I don't think. Fair, fair enough. So two questions off of that. One, I think it would be great if PSA TV, it, obviously it's not going to be on court, but there should be an interview of the loser of all these matches, right? Especially when you get to the quarterfinals and on. Like, they should have a post-match interview with the loser of the match. They do it in every other sport. Doesn't does, Obviously not on court because they don't want to deal with that. The, the, the finalist gets dealt with at the trophy presentation. But as a squash fan, I wanted to hear from Mohamed Al-Shabagi after that, right? And we didn't. I wanted to hear what, what his thoughts were, what his what he's arguing about, what he said he did. I want to hear that. Even if it's in a half hour, 45 minutes later, I think it would be a very... A, a, great addition to the, the PSA Squash TV coverage. I, I think what would be a great addition, not necessarily addressing the crowd in that situation. Not the, the crowd, press, a press conference. conference. Oh, no, no. It's quite, yeah, yeah, press, press conference, you're off yeah. to the side, maybe up in the booth with you guys between the matches or something like yeah. that. Just a quick five minutes. Hey, from your point of view, we just saw this. What, 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 you know, From your point of view, what happened? And I think that would be great. My second question on that is, so 32 years old, Mohamed El Shabagi, you're talking about, you know, what he has done and what he's still doing is amazing. Do you think he has it still in him right now to back up these? So he had the Abraham match, right? Yeah. And then he goes on and loses to Hasham. Yeah. Does he have it in him to push through these matches from like the these tough third round matches and then into a tough quarterfinal and make it and win a platinum event uh, at his age? Does he have it in him? What he has produced after some extremely testing matches. Again, it's up there with Ali. He subjects his body because of the style of play that he has and, and the way that he moves around the court. He, he Again, he has this ornate ability to dig so deep and push 
like not many other players can do on the world tour. I'm just thinking now at 32 years of age, with the quality of field that are around now, your Joel Makins, your Paul Coles, your Ibrahims, your Mustafa Assals, your Ali Farags, I'm not sure that unless there were circumstances surrounding it of other players not being at their best, I don't think that Mohammed could win those major events again. All right, headline. PJ Johnson from Squash TV, Mohamed yeah. Al-Sharbagi's all done. Got it. Never said he was all done. Well, he, he, it's I think, not impossible, but no, I know it's tough. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you remove, I'd have to remove Ali from that equation. If you remove it, I think he, he potentially could put it all together for one full tournament. But Ali and Muhammad, I think, you know, that's, you can't bet against Ali right. these days. Right. And so, as, as I said there, it's um, not just... The fact that Shibagi's 32 years of age, it's the quality of the field that are coming up. You know, For sure. I was yeah, very impressed with yeah. uh, Joel Makin in his last tournament. Yusuf Ibrahim seems to have his body back. You've got your Tsukis, you've got your, you know, the, the Kawad again is back playing right. well again. And, and so. Noah Saul, and Asal's missing and from Noah's all these it. events. So that's going to add an extra layer to the quarterfinals. Quick question on Joel Macon. I noticed Joel Macon's not in the field at the U.S. Open, not injured because I know he's in the field for the Grasshopper. Any idea why he's not playing the U.S. Open? No, that's news to me. No idea. Yeah, okay. No. I, I, I can try I, and I, find I, out, but. Uh, yeah, curious. I looked at surprise. the draw. That's yeah, very surprised. I saw something on you guys were talking on Squatchy. Must have been Joey who mentioned his his next event will be the Grasshopper, and I was like, "Wow, he's not playing the U.S. Open," and sure enough, he's not. But there, there will be is, a valid there will be a, re- a valid reason. Be, that would have been a calculated decision from Joel, I'm sure. Yeah. Jordan doesn't like Philly. Doesn't you know? Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, um, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> so with the women, I think this tournament, in my opinion, anyways, showed that there is. Noran Gohar's injury aside, yeah. that the separation again between those top three with the rest of their players is just, it, it, it's becoming very much more impactful on the women's side, I think. I was looking at the top 10 or 11 girls. So King, Sobe, Kennedy, Gillis, Tayeb, Fichter, Gillis, Elarabi, Evans. Who of those, that group, can win a platinum event right now? Is are any of the any of that group I just mentioned, can they win a platinum event? Or is it always going to be for the next year again? Is it going to be Gohar, Sherbini, El Hamami? In the next twelve months, I don't see anybody out yeah. any outside anybody outside of Hamami, Gohar, or Shabini. Um and actually right, so that's a problem, right? Winning events, I think Gohar's gonna be out mm-hmm. for a while. It's a plantar fascia issue. I'm gonna say I don't see anybody beating Shabini or Hamami now. Not for the next twelve months. You don't think Gohar could go see Abdel, Abdel, Abdel Gawad's uh, plantar fasciitis specialist? Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> but, <laughs> Around a flight to Germany? Yeah, I don't see anybody getting near those to win an event I'm talking about. Just did a little digging. Can you name, and I'll tell you, I'll give you one guess each, the last woman not named Gohar El Sherbini or El to win a platinum event? Tayeb, I would say. Nope. Sobi? Um, Any guess? No, I can't. To win. Yeah, to win a platinum event. No, it was uh, uh, yeah, Joel King's actually a very good, right before she hurt Achilles, she won a platinum event. No, but it was Camille Serm. Oh, my gosh. Camille wow. Serm won the TOC in 2020. Yeah, she was the last that. one. Yeah, 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 I was there for Me- that. Meanwhile, on the, men's, on the men's side, it's not fantastic, but it's definitely more. And since 19, since that same time, call Mohammed Al-Shrabagi, Elias, Farag, Asal, and Marwan Al-Shrabagi have all won platinum events. Yeah, so it's, it's a little it's a, bit more a, a bit, a bit more spread. Yeah. Out. Well, also, so, I mean, I'm just so. to highlight what you're saying there, Bill. Um, 
the point differentiator between, you know, so the rankings and how they get determined is almost 700 difference between the, for that number four position, yeah, third and fourth position. And on the men's side, it's not even close to having any kind of point differential like that. So it just really highlights that top three is really well established. I think it really is right now who's playing for that number four spot, you know, and that that is up for grabs between a lot of great candidates. Sobe, Kennedy, Eltab, uh, Gillis, obviously, and who knows what Yeah, and those guys seem like they could win a match. They could, like, on an off day, beat one of those top players, but they can't back it up. So you have to beat three of those players a lot of times. Well, with Gohara, it'll be different. But a lot of times you have to beat three of those players to win a championship, and they could pull off one of them, Amanda. Amanda beat Gohara. I mean, she was slightly injured, but she did beat her, but then got blanked in three straight games by Hamami. So it's just, you know, it it shows how tough it is and how strong those girls are that they are able to run through. Like, Hamami's run through the tournament was incredible. And, and her, her semi and finals win. So last thing on Qatar I had anyways was the referees and the new edict. It seems to be no back talking, yep. no, no turning around, yelling at the refs, no turning around and questioning the refs almost to the point they've taken it from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I'm just wondering you guys feelings on that and whether you think it's good for the tour bad for the tour does it turn the player into robots as people were saying online or is it something hey it needed to be done to keep play pace of play going i feel as though definitely the directive from from psa and the referees is to try and stamp out all of this the shenanigans and the back and forth from the players and can you touch on that what was actually shared what's what is we're talking about the directive but what is the communication going on right now basically you can ask for a let ball or you can ask for a decision and then you can ask for an explanation why. That's pretty much it. Apart from that, you can't get back into a dialogue with, where's my line? What am I supposed to do? Why have you given a let there? Did they spell out consequences then? Yeah, conduct warning straight away. Right. Sorry. I, listen, I, I think it's for the better of the game. I, I don't like all of this constant back chat. There are certain players that uh, are worse than others where it, you know we've watched certain matches where it became literally at the literally the end of every single rally, there would be a comment, a remark, uh, a, a decision that needed to be made, and it. I've certain I've turned certain matches off because they were unwatchable for me as an ex-player. I just yeah. didn't enjoy it at all. Let alone let alone being one of the paying public sat there, you know, so-called supposedly to be entertained, having to watch and listen that to that. However. For me, it's the first tournament where this has been brought in. I, I like the way that it's heading. I just felt the way that the referees delivered it at times was too stern and a little bit condescending at times. In And the manner in which it was delivered was too harsh. And I get it. I, I understand their predicament because they're trying to be firm and they want to, you know, stamp this out of the game as quickly as possible, I, it will just take a little bit of time and I think the delivery will start to improve. Then that will eventually clean and tidy things up. So one of the other <clears throat> changes that has gone on is also the the number of challenges that uh, players get. And yeah. I mean, what's your thoughts? Just explain the background of what it was to what it is now and what are your thoughts on how it impacted this these latest tournaments? I mean, initially it was, you were allowed four reviews, four appeals, 
within a match, within the match, and then one in the fifth game. I felt that was possibly too many because there were too many stop starts throughout a game, too many opportunities for players to question and, and interrupt play. And players then started to use it from a tactical standpoint. It's now been dropped down to two. I actually don't think two is enough. I feel that the optimum number would be three. It doesn't sound much, but I, there were certain situations. There was one in particular for El Shabini, who's normally very good at appealing in yeah. the third game. I think it, she was game ball down, 10-9 down. And it was a really simple let ball that was awarded as a no let, but no appeal. And yeah. that was, I just can only think that it, it was through a fear of losing her review options later yeah. on. W- I think three would be an optimum number, Connor. Four, possibly too many, and two isn't enough. Well, they do allow that if you go into a fifth game, or is it past a third that you'll get an extra review? So you do earn an extra one. No, it's only in the fifth, I think. It's only in the fifth. Only, only in the fifth, fifth game. Yeah. You, get, you don't get an yeah, extra one either. Two, you only two, get three one, right? entire match until the fifth. And if you don't use the other two, you don't have three no, in the you fifth. Don't you still over. only it's have one. Right. I got you. Just okay. One only. Because you're... I, and I'm wondering if Sherbini thought she roll, was going to roll over, and that's why she didn't call, ask for a couple no, of she at some known. point. Cause, no, she would have known that. Yeah. No, it was just a, so tell one me, of those moments. So uh, also, so were the players informed of this like directly before this tournament or at some point told, hey, this is the way it's going to be? Because they online seemed awful surprised at it. No, it was in Paris, that, Bill. The, two, the, two, the right. two decisions were in Paris. The two reviews mm, okay. were allowed. To, that was when it first came in. In the so start what, what of the new season, so the 2023-24 season. I think a lot of times what happens is any attempts to communicate, right, people will be like, oh, you got to, whether it's in in writing or in a meeting, Not maybe someone didn't attend a meeting, maybe someone didn't read the memo, that's what happens. And so it does catch people off guard. Right. In certain situations where the referee will kick to the his own VAR, just not even engaging the players, right? He's, hey, I'm, I don't have confidence in this call. I think that was done a lot better this time of not kicking it in clutch matches. But a question is in crucial position or uh, points where it really is, was the ball up or down? I don't think that should count against a player's review. If the referee goes to the VAR to, to the VR to get I, it yeah, looked at, think, or well, if a player appeals a double yeah, balance. Yeah, I think if a player appeals a double balance or anything, I think we need to get away from that. The only issue you will have with, and I'm not disagreeing with you, Connor, I just feel that the only problem with that particular situation is players, if there's any doubt, will just automatically review. Right. Because there's right. no penalty for them to do so. And then you have to take right. time away to go to the VR to watch yeah. the replays right. again, which will create a break in play and... I, well, well, that was interesting in the Hisham match, right, against Shabagi, because there was a ball that was down. I believe it was match point for Shabagi, if I'm not mistaken. At no, 10. it was 9-8. Uh, it, it was 9-8. Nine, 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 right, right, right. I'm sorry. You're right. Eight, yeah. nine, and and it almost seemed like somebody yelled in Jason Foster's ear, hey, you need to stop play right now because that was a good pickup because he had called it He had called it a double bounce and it clearly wasn't. And there was no review. And it was like kind of like Muhammad was getting ready to serve and Jason Foster was wait a minute. And it seemed like almost somebody from the VRR yelled in Jason's ear saying, hey, you know, that's stop play. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So they had clear evidence that the decision that was given by the video, by the central referee was in fact incorrect. There's a lot. Of, sorry, Connor, go on. Do you want to say something? Well, no, I was going to say, I'm going to try starting this again of, I think that as a sport, we need to be 
incorporating just better technology. That This is a black or white decision. Was the ball in or out, or is it one bounce or two bounce? And so in those cases, using technology, whether it's, think of soccer, the goal line technology, or football, sorry, where that just comes in, right? Like we don't need a ref. And how can a referee from that distance be able to make a decision of that versus now we have better camera angles, we have more people watching this. So that's what I'm saying. Let's remove this from an equation of the game where now we're asking the referee to really just make decisions on overall match play and conduct strokes and lets and everything. Yeah. I think going back to the, the beginning of the show, the these particular scenarios won't become as problematic because the camera quality or the camera's qualities that we can start to afford in the, with those pickup situations will become a bit clearer. At the moment, we just can't afford to have the super slow-mo, high-definition cameras. Right. And with some of the, I mean, even us sitting there watching it a few times over, some of these pickups are actually quite hard. And in fact, are even harder to pick up whether they're double when they come through in slow motion. Yeah. Because right. of the, the blur, quality of the, the cameras. The blur that occurs, right? It's just like yes, this exactly. total blur. Yes, exactly. It's a slight blur. Yeah. However, if we right. can start to bring in some of these more high definition, high higher quality cameras, I don't think those particular pickups will be such an issue. That for me is what I agree. The... It should be a thing of the past, these particular points that come up with the double bounces and the out of courts and stuff, but we're just not there yet with, from a technology standpoint. All right. Well, before we wrap this up, gone from Qatar, next up is Houston, the Southwestern Women's Open, a gold event down in Houston. And then we have the U.S. Open, the next platinum event to follow a week after. But this is probably going to become a weekly segment on the show, Olympics or no Olympics. So we've gone through the ringer with the Olympics over the last month or so from a lot of confidence, mostly on my part, that the that squash was going to be in the Olympics. And then a couple of weeks ago, we got the news that the IOC changed the changed the rules and that the LA 28 board meeting was canceled where they were going to put forward the sports and everybody thought squash might have been one of them. And then we got, whoa, wait a minute. The people on LA 28 have a bigger voice and they're going to in, in, insert their power and squash is back in. So I'm I'd say, could we just go around the room right now? Gut feeling, if you had to say right now, is squash in the 2028 Olympics? PJ? Yes or no answer? Yes or no answer? No. No. Connor? All right, Bill, yes. Okay. Okay. So let's we'll, do, we'll just make this a yes no Olympic segment every week until we finally get the <laughs> announcement. Which who knows when that will actually be? But it's a roller coaster. The social media and the news clips you read and just <laughs> it's I've made so many side bets with people that squash is going to be the Olympics, I, and none of them are monetary. They're all like dinners and buy a beer and all that kind of stuff. So we really need squash to get in the Olympics, just so for my own financial solvency. To be honest with you, we do. Love it. We do. I love your optimism. Optimism. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I yes. hope you're right. I really hope I'm wrong. On this <laughs> I really so on personal news, PJ. Before we go, I shot 85 on Friday, my lowest score of the summer. Wow. Um, and what about yeah. the? I uh, was the back nine. <laughs> back nine was solid oh, also uh, i shot 40 on the front with a double bogey on nine and i shot 85 with a a triple double finish wow yes that's, that's how well i played golf, mate. that's so, good good solid Did you get play. My, my opponent going into 17 i was i had already closed out the match so i didn't care i uh, i won the match yeah. i won the match three and two so i it didn't matter to me and my scores are my scores are they yeah. are my opponent shot 82 in law. I mean, he, I, I was getting one shot aside from him, but 85. That's, that's solid good for goal, me. Mate. Congratulations. Well done. Good. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the strength um, of that, just, I will uh, let you come and play 
uh, golf with me again sometime. Now, <laughs> no, that, you're, maybe, now, you're, now you're sub 90. Yeah. <laughs> all, all that's been involved is flying it. across the Atlantic, bringing your clubs, yeah. and yeah. that's it. That's it. Yeah, it's an easy trip. Easy trip. Be worth the trip, no, Bill. Be worth the trip. Be a good time. <laughs> Trust me. All right. All right, guys. I look forward to the next one. Good seeing you again. PJ, just lay down, take a rest. I mean, you have till Philly, right? So you have three I weeks got two off. two and a half weeks off, Bill. Yeah, yeah. What, do you- what am I going to do? I'm going to be meticulously <laughs> studying the draw. I'm going to be researching it's the Olympic playing. fit for 2028. Um, you know. Okay. And whatever else, homework you assign. All right, guys. Exactly. Good stuff. Exactly. See ya. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.